Well, good morning, Biltmore Church. How's everybody doing today? Yeah, all right. I think the online folks probably got a little bit louder than that. Good morning, Biltmore Church. How is everybody doing today? Good. Well, happy, uh, happy July 4th to you guys. It's so good to see your faces. And if you're joining us online, wherever you are, uh, we are incredibly glad that you decided to join us. We hope that this has been a resource for you as maybe you're traveling or maybe even that you're sitting on the lake watching this thing on your phone. I don't know what it is, but you're, we're glad that you're here. Uh, I tell you what, before we get rolling today, why don't you look at a neighbor and say to them, I don't care if you know them or not, okay? I don't care if you know them or not. I want you to look at them, choose one, the one that you choose, don't be offended if you're next to them and they don't choose you, okay? It's not you, but it might be you, all right? Just throwing that out there. Why don't you look at them and say to them today, you are at the right place at the right time. Go ahead, right now, go ahead. There you go. Well, my name is, uh, my name is Jason Gaston. It is it's a joy to be here with you today and to open up God's Word. Listen, God is moving all across Western North Carolina. He has been moving in the life of this church over the last several weeks and over the last couple months as well. I've heard story after story after story of the way that God is at work in the life of this church. You know, you, you heard just a couple weeks ago, we put on Adventure Week with our kids' ministry, right? Uh, I heard a story from one of the leaders who was literally in tears because she could sense that the Spirit of God was moving in this little girl's life, and she trusted Christ for her salvation at Adventure Week. That's why we do these events. We don't do them just to draw large crowds. We do them to see life change. This past week, our student ministry team, there's been a, a group of students that have been serving in Chicago, serving and seeing the mission of God go forward. This past week, I got to meet many of you for the first time. Kelvin Mosley, one of our pastors uh, here at this church, he is a stud, by the way. I love that guy. And I got to meet over a hundred, I didn't get to meet all of you, but I got to meet many of you at our mature adult gathering luncheon. That's like 150 of y'all that jumped in there. And then in just a couple of weeks, we've got a gathering for our young adults and college students on July 18th. If you've never thrown an ax at a target, that will be your day, okay? Uh, we put these things on, you guys, listen, we, we put these events on, um, not to gather a large crowd, but to give you an opportunity to be an inviter, to invite somebody to come alongside of you to these things. But then also, hey, just for you to get to know the body of Christ better. Uh, you know, this last year, this last plus year has been uh, hard and difficult emotionally on many of you. And as we're kind of coming back into play here, uh, we're, we're providing you some of these opportunities like camp and like adventure week and like mission trips and like cookouts and all of those things for you guys to join in to reconnect with the body of Christ. And so God is at work in this church and I am so grateful for the way that he is moving in the lives of his people here. You. Biltmore Church is not the building. Biltmore Church is a people. Can I get an amen somebody? Amen. All right. The year was 1937. A young athletic man had just stepped onto the, uh, a campus at a local junior college. And he stepped onto that campus with the hopes and dreams of making it to a four-year university to play sports. After a couple grueling years at the junior college, he would actually receive a scholarship to the University of California at Los Angeles, UCLA. Okay, and this young man did not star in one sport or even two sports. He was a collegiate four-sport athlete. He starred in track and field, football, basketball, and, of course, God's favorite sport, 
baseball. You're welcome. That's exactly right. For most of his collegiate career, he found success in three of those sports. Basketball, track, and football. But baseball, on the other hand, did not treat him all that well. In fact, if you are a baseball fan, you would know that his batting average was well below the Mendoza line, a whopping 097. As my granddaddy would say, that dog won't hunt, right? That ain't going to work. That ain't going to get you to the next level in any way, shape, or form. He goes to UCLA, and he graduates with a four-year degree. When he graduates, he, he steps in and he decides to start a career towards the path of football. So he joins a semi-pro football team called the Honolulu Bears. His first game with the team was in Pearl Harbor on December 5th, 1941. Now, if you know your history, you know that that is two days before the attack on Pearl Harbor. This man's life was literally spared by 48 hours. After his booming career with the Honolulu Bears came to an end, he decided that he would enter into the United States military where he would become a second lieutenant and a platoon leader of the 761st Tank Battalion. And then when his army career is over, he decides when he rejoins civilian life, he's going to jump back into athletics. So naturally, he goes to the sport that treated him horrifically. Baseball. That's exactly right. In 1945, because of his athleticism, he would sign a contract with the professional baseball team that was budding all throughout the Midwest, but it had no, no national notoriety. No, not a lot of people were like, like signing up to go watch this team play baseball. That team was the Kansas City Monarchs of the Negro American League. After one long and grueling season with the Monarchs, his life would be flipped upside down and in turn the course of our entire country. In the summer of 1945, this man would sign another contract, and this time it would be with the Brooklyn Dodgers. After two years of grueling it out in the minor league stadiums all over the country, on April 15, 1947, this young man would break the color barrier of baseball, and he would become the first black player to play in the major leagues. He would integrate, and his integration would actually change the course of American history. That man, his name is... Jackie Robinson Wright is rightly celebrated as an American hero. Why? Because his courage and his boldness to step between the lines when nobody wanted him there would change the fabric and the storyline of our country forever. But we celebrate him as a national hero. There's a day when the, all the players in the major leagues wear his number. They put on the number 42 and they take the field to honor and celebrate this man. But life for Jackie was anything but easy. And it was not easy for those that would follow in his footsteps in the years to come. There were, in many ways, shapes and forms, some pretty dark days. Imagine walking into the locker room, 400 Major League Baseball players, 399 of them had white skin. Walking into the locker room, being the only minority where your teammates don't want you there. 
traveling with your teammates to a restaurant or checking into a hotel and the lady or the man at the hotel won't even let you use the pen to sign in. Trying to sit with your teammates on the road as you go into a restaurant and the waiter or waitress literally will not serve you. Death threats ran rampant. His wife and him feared for their life at multiple different times. It was not an easy journey. When asked along the way, Jackie Robinson, when when he was asked along the way through his painful journey, if he ever thought about quitting, Jackie Robinson said, every day, literally every single day, I thought about hanging up the cleats and calling it quits. The reality, however, is that Jackie Robinson's courage in the storm and through the storm paved the way for those that would follow later. He had to endure. He had to endure opposition from other men and women in his own locker room. Now, not all of us have faced difficult seasons like Jackie Robinson, right? Okay, like not all of us can say, man, I I, I feel your pain. I know what you've been through. But the reality is, is that every single one of you under the sound of my voice today, no matter where you are, you have been through some sort of difficult season in your life. You have faced suffering. You have faced a trial. And you may be actually in that storm today. And you may be asking the same question. Should I throw in the towel? Should I hang up the cleats? Why would a loving God put me through this storm and this season of my life. Today, we're diving into the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. In fact, if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open them up and turn there today. If you've grown up in church, this is probably a little bit of a familiar passage for you. Jesus, in the boat, dead asleep. What happens? A storm hits. The disciples start freaking out, fear hits the boat, and Jesus is asleep at the front of it. Jesus ends up speaking to the storm, the waves die down, and everything seems good from there on out. What we're going to do today is see a truth that all believers need to not only see, but need to put to their feet and set their heart aflame with so you can live a life for the glory of Jesus through every single storm and trial that will come. In fact, the way that you walk through the storm, Christian, listen, this is really important. Eyeballs up here. If you are a believer... The way that you walk through your trial with your eyes on Christ and your hope secure is probably one of the greatest witnesses that an unbelieving world will ever see. There are many of your co-workers, there are many of you under the sound of my voice today that do not believe that a God could allow his people to suffer and that there would be a God that would allow his people to walk through the storms. What we're going to read today is this, and this is really, really, really important. Jesus is not going to calm the storms of your life all the time. Why? Because the storm that you're going through, guess what? It may not end. You're like, wow, man, I'm so glad I showed up today. That was really encouraging. Thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, have you read the New Testament The book of Hebrews chapter 11 describes like it's like the hall of faith, right? 
the first half of the Hall of Faith for all those that saw God do some incredible things. He like shut the mouths of lions. He did X, Y, and Z. But the second half of Hebrews 11, guess what happened to those who were considered in the Hall of Faith? Their lives, they literally were sawn in two, cut in half. But we skip over those. Because American culture, y'all, we love a health and wealth gospel, which is a false gospel. Christian, if you are going to follow Jesus, you are going to endure a storm. You're going to walk through it. With Jesus, however, what he promises you is not that he will calm every storm, is that he will see you through every storm. He will not leave you. He will not forsake you. Today, here's what we're going to do. We're going to read Mark 4, verse 35 through 41. I'm going to make a few observations from the text, and we're going to see the Holy Spirit work in this place today. Mark chapter 4, verse 35 and 41. Let's read. Verse 35 says this, And on that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. Now, Jesus, in the beginning part of Mark chapter 4, had just started teaching from the sea in a boat to the people in parables, okay? Parables, I love parables because I feel like I'm a little bit of a fool. And a parable is like, pictures, thank you. I like this. Like, simple truths, right? Simple truths. Jesus has just started this, and he's, he's, he's beginning this teaching through the parables, and that's where you're picking up right here. Verse 36, and leaving the crowd, they took him with them on the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. So Jesus is like, hey, listen, all this teaching, all these people, we need to just get away. Let's get in the boat. Let's go to the other side of the sea. And so they pack up ship, literally. See what I did there? Okay, forget it. All right. So they they packed up all their stuff. They got in the boat, and they set sail for the other side of the sea. And then in verse 37 says this, And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. All right, side note here, okay? I love how specific Mark gets in the Gospels. I love the the specificity that he gets into with certain things. It's not just that there was one boat, it's that there were many boats. In fact, a lot of people, a lot of professors in university settings will tell you that there's no way that the the writings and the teaching of the Bible could be real because they're so general. But when you read like something like Mark chapter 4, what you see is that Mark is recounting so much specific pieces of the story, it's hard to discount it. Like, details matter, don't they? Right? They matter. Like, okay, let let me just even throw this out there for you, Okay. If I were going to ask you, hey, tell me your 10 best friends from when you were eight years old. All right? Actually, let's just do that. Who are your 10 best friends when you were 18 years old? Let's take like 10 seconds right now and try to remember them. Your 10 best friends. You probably got three that you can remember. Now, if I was going to say to you, okay, close your eyes and walk me through your home when you were eight years old. You could tell me where the blanket was over the sofa. You could tell me where that, cord, that corded uh, telephone was in the kitchen. Had 87 feet on it. You'd pick it up. You'd walk down the hallway, take a left into the bathroom, take a left into the master so you could have a phone. Y'all remember those? Those are awesome. Okay. You could tell me where everything was. Why? Because God created your mind to remember things in a certain way. It's called spatial memory. Right? Mark is recalling even the very space of the boat. 
There was not just one boat, there were multiple boats, and Jesus like literally was asleep, not just like on the bench, but he was asleep on a cushion. There's so much detail here. And then he, they say to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Literally, bro, we're dying. The waves are coming over the boat. There's some loud thunder, heavy rain coming in right here, okay, right there. We're dying. Do you not even care that we are dying? And he awoke, and he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. And then he looked to the disciples, and he said, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and he said, and then they said to one another, this is an important question. Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him. See, in the Gospel of Mark, what Mark does is he actually walks you through several different accounts of ways that Jesus proves his divinity, that he is both fully God and fully man. You'll read it as you begin to read the New Testament, you begin to read the Gospel of Mark, that he shows that he literally has power over death. He raises the dead to life. He has power over demons. Next chapter, into, into the next chapter, you'll see it right there. Literally, he has power over the earthly gods, the demons and the principalities and the powers. Even our God is higher than them. He suppresses them with a single word or a snap of the fingers. But then he also has power over creation. He's showing off his divinity. Jesus really is God in the flesh. And you pick up this story right here, and Jesus is showing off his power to his people because they would need it. They would need to remember it. A few observations for us today. I hope you have something to take notes with. If not, prick your finger, write it in blood. Number one. Number one. The surprise of the storm stirred up fear in the boat. The surprise of the storm stirred up fear in the boat. The present reality of the storm has struck fear into the lives of the disciples. Now, we always, like, on this side of the cross, you know, this side of the canonization of Scripture, we love to point our fingers at people in the Bible. We're like, you guys are idiots. Like, why would you be scared? Do you not know who's in the boat with you? Do you not know who's in control? Let's just be honest. The the, the waves were literally coming over the bow of the boat. They were coming into the boat, and they were sinking. Who in here would be afraid? This guy? These guys were struck with fear, and I don't blame them. Look in verse 37. A great windstorm arose. The way, listen, the way that the sea was set up, they are literally below, okay? They're below sea level, and there's mountains around, and these winds would come off off the mountains, and it would blow up not just like a choppy day at the lake, but hurricane-sized waves. This was no, like, normal day at the lake. A great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, Jesus, asleep on the cushion. They woke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are dying? Now, as you start to get to know me a little bit more, you'll know that I actually love surprises, okay? I love them. I really love expected surprises. Like uh, on my birthday, like my kids, you know, 12 years old, 10 years old, 7 years old, they're like, hey, do you want to know what mom got you for your birthday? I can tell you, I can tell you, I can tell you, I can tell you, I can tell you. I'm like, I don't want to know. Literally, I want to open the gift and be surprised, right? I love it. I love going into it. Now, don't like banish me forever from this church, okay? I love like, 
I used to especially love as a kid, like haunted houses, right? Because I knew I was going to feel alive because my adrenaline was going to be pumping when I walked out of that place, right? In fact, I have a very vivid memory um, of when I was like 10 years old, I went to Universal Studios, which was a terrible idea because these are professionals, okay? This is not like some backwoods country guy with a chainsaw, like, ah! right? These are professionals. I'm standing in line at Universal Studios going into a haunted house. I got a friend that goes in front of me. They close the door behind him. 30 seconds later, all you hear is this scream, and then the door opens for you to go in. <laughs> You're like, all right, man, here we go. <laughs> so I remember, I'm gonna, can I walk you all through this? It's not in my notes, all right? So here we go. I, I remember walking in it, and the door closed behind me, and then all of a sudden the lights go out. And then this little light at the end of the tunnel pops up. And so you're, you're like, I guess I have to walk towards the light. And as you walk towards the light, the wall behind you, it's all cushioned, like Willy Wonka style, okay? It starts like pushing you from behind, and the room gets smaller and smaller and smaller, and you're like, this is not good. Before you know it, I'm literally on my hands and knees at the very end, pushing against the walls. I'm like, I can't get out. How many of y'all right there, you'd have a heart attack and die? Okay. I was like, oh my gosh, underneath, okay, pitch dark. The floor lights up underneath you. I'm on all fours, and there, I'm, I'm basically on a glass floor. There is a guy underneath me with snakes and cockroaches all over him. He's looking me in the eye. He's like, ah! And I was like, ah! But I walked out of that place more alive than I had ever felt. I love, I love surprises. I love them when I can anticipate them, right? When I can expect them. But an unexpected storm is a whole different ballgame. Think about, listen, think about who's in the boat with Jesus, in his boat, not in the other boats, but in his boat. His disciples, right? His disciples are in the boat with him. If you read earlier in the Gospel of Mark, what you see is that the people in the boat with him were experienced fishermen. They knew the seas. They knew it like the back of their hand. They knew that the best time to go out in the boat, you, you actually read it often, the, the fishermen are out in the waters when? At night, in the early mornings. Why? Because there's very, the, the likelihood of a storm coming in the night is very minimal. And they knew that. So Jesus says, hey, let's go to the other side. They pack it up and they set off. They were experienced fishermen. They knew their way around the lake like the back of their hand. They knew what they were getting into. They knew the waters. They knew everything about it. I'm a big duck hunter, okay? And I, I love to love to duck hunt in eastern North Carolina. There is a there is a almost extinct group of people, unfortunately, in eastern North Carolina called the high tiders, the hoitoidas, okay? They had this really cool accent. And every time I go duck hunting, I got a buddy of mine that's one of them. You get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, he puts you in the boat, and he is speeding through the, the swamp creeks and the back canals like 80 miles an hour, like on edge. And I've come, I'm just sitting there like, eh, can't see a thing ahead of me, but I trust the guy. Why? Because the guy driving the boat knows every nook and cranny of the creek. It's like his second home. The disciples in the boat are the same exact way. It's a normal day. It's normal. They're not panicking. Disciples in the boat, when Jesus says, listen, on that day when evening had come, he said, let's go to the other side. It's a no-brainer. It's like easy. Let's just go. Let's get there. It was a normal day, normal men, normal week, normal task. And then the bottom fell out. The bottom fell out. Normal turned to different. 
Normal turned into a day that they thought they might not make it through. And guess what it says they were? Afraid. You ever been there? Where normal turned into abnormal? And you're not sure you're going to make it through to the other side? I have. December 2008. I'm going through a normal Sunday morning routine. I get up early. I'm praying over our church. I'm praying for the people in our church. I've been married for three beautiful years. I had a five-month-old son, Holt, at the time. I get a phone call, 5.30 in the morning. My sister-in-law, I'm like, that's weird. So I open up my Nextel, because that's what I had. I'm like, hello? She's weeping. She had just gotten a phone call from the U.S. Embassy in Singapore to tell me that my wife's dad was out on a motorcycle ride across the, he had crossed the border out of Singapore and into the countryside of Malaysia on a Harley and was killed. He was hit head on by a dump truck. Three years of marriage did not prepare me for the moment that I had to walk into that bedroom and wake up daddy's little girl and tell her that he was gone. How was I going to walk in there? I was not prepared for this. They didn't teach me this in seminary. No one sat me down across the table in my preparing for marriage seminars and said, here's what you're going to have to do when you get the phone call that their mom or dad passes away. No one prepares you for that. Normal day, normal routine, and then the bottom fell out. How was I going to raise my five-month-old son to grow up to know that he had a poppy that loved him? that wanted to be with him, that wanted to like shower blessings and shower beauty and shower love and probably spoil him with all the things that I didn't want him to spoil with. How was it going to help him remember his legacy? How, how, how is that going to happen in my life? I don't know. A normal day turns into a serious storm that I'm not quite sure how to navigate. In an instant, In a normal day, going through a normal routine, in a familiar place, the boats of our lives start to take on water. The calm storms, the calm seas start to rage, and the storm is raging around you, and fear strikes your heart. Have you ever been there? Maybe you're there right now. Maybe it's the news you weren't expecting when you went in for a physical and found out that that the discomfort you have in your hip is actually a cancerous tumor. Or it's the reply you got back from the university you had your eyes and your hearts set on from an early age and you've been working towards it only for them to tell you you weren't good enough. Or it's the spouse that walked out and no one else seems to be walking in. It's the bleeding that comes in the early stages of your pregnancy and you are scared. It's the son or the daughter that comes to you and looks you in the eye and says, I don't believe what you believe anymore. Out of nowhere. Or it's the morning you showed up for work only to be told to go home because you no longer are employed at this place. And the surprise of the storms are not just wounding, they can be crushing They can crush you, and they bring about fear, and they bring about pain, and it was no different for the disciples. Point number two, the nearness of God is our faithful anchor in the storm. The nearness of God is our faithful anchor in the storm. Look at verse 35. 
On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us, that's important. We overlook words a lot. Us. Let us go to the other side. Verse 38, skip down. But he was in the stern, literally in the boat. He was with them, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and they said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now there are a lot of things. Listen, I get it. There are a lot of things that many expositors and theologians have parsed out with Jesus snoozing in the stern of the boat. You can take this thing 15 or 20 different directions. I mean, was Jesus frightened by the storm? No. Why? Because he knew that when they shoved off from shore, guess where he was taking them? Into the storm. You know, there's, a, there's an interesting, interesting storyline over bison. You guys, you guys ever heard about the, the crazy way that a bison endures a storm? You know, cattle, they herd up and they just wait it out together. But bison attack the storm. They go right into it head on. Jesus has shipped their people off, the disciples off from the sea. He's taken them from the classroom here, the parables, to the storm of life. And they are going full throttle. They had heard a lot of crazy sermons, but now they were getting ready to experience Jesus at work right in front of them. And that is all that they would need. Jesus in the boat is all that they would need. Uh, The great prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, says it like this. He said, observe in the narrative. This will not be on your screen. Just listen. Observe in the narrative that though Christ was asleep, he was in the ship. He had not left his disciples, and however God may seem to deal with his people, he is still with them. Fear you not, he says, for I am with you. If there is nothing more, the presence of the Lord ought to be enough to cheer us. Our heavenly Father knows our need. To be banished from the presence of God would literally be hell. But however tossed with a tempest our vessel may be, we cannot despair as long as the Lord is our companion. You see, presence or nearness is at the heart of God's story with his people. The presence of God is all you need for everlasting joy. Presence is at the heart of the story of God from beginning to end. Let's just trace it for a second, okay? Go all the way back to the book of Genesis chapter 1. God creates, listen, God creates everything, and he does it by doing what to it? He speaks it into existence. And then he, on the pinnacle of creation, he he forms and he breathes life into humanity, and man and woman are with, with God in the garden, and everything is good. It's perfect. But then what happens? What enters the world? Rebellion through the hearts of man. And when sin entered the world, what is the question that God asked them? Where are you presence fractured and then from that point on banished from the garden god was constantly pursuing his people and showing off his goodness by being near he led his people through the waters right out of egypt he was with his people with a cloud of smoke and a pillar of fire He would make his glory and his presence known through the Ark of the Covenant, God, with his people. 
The temple, when you would go into the inner courts, you would go past the outer courts, into the inner courts, into the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God dwelt. God has always intended to be near to you. Though our sin has driven him out, his grace and mercy has brought it back. And then look, all of that is pointing to one greater story. We just opened up the New Testament. Literally, the New Testament comes and what do we see? God has made himself not a far off God anymore, but he has made himself near through the person of Jesus. He shows up, God in a body dwelling among men. We sing it at Christmas, right? Right, it's like, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man, with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. God came, he dwelt, he lived among his people. And then, when it looked like presence was restored, he goes to the cross, is crushed for our iniquities, and then he goes into the grave, and now we feel the separation. Is he who he says he was? But what do we know, church, happened on the third day? Jesus curb-stomped death. He kicked it right in the teeth, and he was resurrected, and now he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Whoo, but wait a minute. Guess what happens after that? He comes back, and he makes himself known to his people. See? Touch. I'm here. I have endured opposition from sinful men. Here I am. See, touch. He goes back up into heaven. But then he doesn't leave us. What does he give us? He gives us the Holy Spirit, Christ in us, the hope of glory. You are not alone. You're not alone. And then, listen, listen, listen. All of this, we're not done yet. All of that? Guess what it's pointing to? The new creation when behold he'll make all things new and God will be our God and we will be his people and we will be with him. He is making all things new. The storyline of God is pointing to that. God in the boat is all that we need. Psalm 16 verse 11, you reveal to me the path of life in your presence is what? Fullness of Joy. Where? Anywhere else? Out there in the waters? No. In your presence is fullness of joy. Psalm 23, verse 6. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me, the psalmist says, all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. There's something about being near to God. John 14, 18. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. Psalm 73, verse 28, but as for me, God's presence is my good. The presence of God is our good. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saved those who's crushed in spirit. And if his nearness is our good, surely he is still good. In fact, hold on. Romans 8, I just thought about this. Not going to be on your screen, sorry. Romans 8. Romans 8, 31. We love this verse. But now when you think about it through the storm, listen, just listen to this. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be, who can be against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Look down in verse 36. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction can anguish, 
persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, cancer. Can any of, things, any of those things separate us from the love of God as it is written? Because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. Sounds like a great boat ride, huh? <laughs> no. No, 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 no. In all things, we are more than conquerors. For I am persuaded that not even death or life or angels or rulers, things present or things to come, Hostile powers, height or depth, or any other created thing will have the power to do what? They will not have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. He is in the boat. Your anchor in life is not found outside the boat. It's found in the boat, in the person of Christ. And that is countercultural. You don't need some external thing to rub a little ointment on your wounds. You need a person that can heal. You need a person that can carry. You need a person that can sustain you through the storm. His presence is all that we need for everlasting joy. Our anchor is Jesus, and he's in the boat with you in your storm. Last point, number three. The power of God is our hope over the storm. The power of God is our hope over the storm. Verse 39, and he awoke and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. You see, this whole story points to a greater one. How, how did God create everything back in Genesis? He spoke it. Listen, that's the difference between God and us. There's a lot of differences, but that's a, if I had a, if I have a pen in my pocket, which I don't, okay, and I put that pen in my palm and I say, be a bird, what do I have? A pen on the floor, right? I got a pen on the floor. God is utterly different. We sang about it just a few minutes ago. Holy, 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 there's no one like you. You are on a whole different level. They say, who is this man that when he speaks, creation obeys? Who is this man? His name is Jesus, and he's God. And he has the power over creation, and guess what you are? His created being. His rule and his reign is not far from your storm. It is right in the middle of it. I heard one pastor say it like this. You see, Jesus will always do one of two things in your storm. He'll either show off his power by delivering you through the storm, or he'll show off his power through his ability to keep you in the storm. It's powerful. The question that we all have to deal with in our lives is the same question that the disciples posed in the boat. What will you do with the man that's in the boat? Who is he? Who is this man? He is the one all of creation has been pointing towards. He is the one in which the entire story of Scripture has been screaming of his coming, of his plan. The story in Mark 4 actually conjures up for many of young Jewish readers a story in the Old Testament. If you are familiar with the Bible, 
you would see that there's a direct correlation between the story of Jonah and the story of Jesus. You guys remember Jonah, right? God gave him directive. He said, not today. Gets in a boat. Starts to run away from where God called him. Running from the what? Presence of God. And he thinks by going down into the boat, he can sink further so God cannot find him. You read all throughout history and even in the Bible, you'll see that the ocean, the seas, the waves, the storms are actually a picture of God's fury and wrath. And Jonah, asleep in the boat, sleeping there, the people on the boat with Jonah freak out and they say, why are the gods angry with us? We should offer up a sacrifice. And Jonah's like, it is me. I've been running from my God. And what do they do with him? They throw him off the boat into the waters of God's wrath. What does God do in that moment? God actually redeems Jonah through a fish. Where he would spend days in the belly of the fish. And be spit back out on the, water, on the shore. Saved. Though the wrath of God around him, God still showed off his grace and mercy. You see, Jesus, it was not time for him to throw himself into the ocean, so he spoke over it to show off who he really was. But unlike Jonah, Jesus would endure the fury of God's wrath upon the cross. He would take every sin, every shame, every guilt, and he'd be nailed up to the cross on our behalf. It's what we have on our shirts when we do baptism. Jesus, in my place, it should have been me. I should have been the one thrown into the fury of the sea, but God did it on my behalf. He absorbed every ounce of the wrath of God on our behalf so that we don't have to. If you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new is come, and you have someone who's in the boat carrying you through it. We have a God that is for you, not against you. He's not a God that you can just call on when things are bad. He's not a God that you just give a high five to when things are good. He's the, he's the God in every season of your life. And he's near. And his nearness is your good. Father, today we come to you and we say to you that we are a needy people. We need you. God, I don't know what the seasons of life that we're going through in this church body of Christ represented in here. I don't know what we're going through, but God, I do know this. That whether we see that storm calm or whether we don't until we set foot on the soil of the kingdom that you're calling us towards, God, we know that you're with us. Nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You proved it. You're faithful. You're good. Father, I pray that we would see that our hope is not found in anything else outside the boat when the storms come. It's only found in you, the anchor in the boat through the storm. Father, I pray that we would trust and see in the seasons of this life that you are God and you are good and you are for us. You are not against us. Father, I pray for those that are brokenhearted, that they would know that you are near. God, I pray that they would sense the nearness of you through the body of Christ, that we would uphold each other, we would push each other on, we would spur each other on towards love and good deeds. Father, I pray for those that aren't in the storm yet, but it's coming. They're in the boat. They've set, set sail off the shore where things are good. You told us that if we're going to follow you, we would endure a storm, suffering, pain. God, what separates us from that is you. Your presence 
your goodness, your grace, and your mercy towards us through Christ. Father, I pray that your church, your people, she would be edified today. She would be encouraged to know that we can keep running that race with perseverance. With our eyes on you and the joy set before us, God, we can run the race with endurance. Not in our own power, but through yours. You're so good to us. You're so gracious. You're so kind. You're so loving. We thank you for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray.